I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this, and is, this is the Liberty Memoir Book Club. Club. Okay. We're back online. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you could hear from that intro that we're not in the same town right now, but we are of the same mind. So we're going to keep plowing <laughs> forth. We have one mind, two hearts. <laughs> and we're going to plow forth with Celebrity Memoir Book Club, the podcast where we read a celebrity memoirs and give them a thorough shake. And I'm just going to be honest with you guys. They're coming with opinions. Unfortunately, me and Ashley are analytical thinkers, as they would say, in the high school realm. We're kind of AP readers. We are AP readers, but do you know what we're not? PhD readers, okay? So if you're coming in here expecting the absolute truth beyond measure, I've got to be honest, we know our truth and we know what's in the book and we're going to do our best. We're going to keep it fast and loose. And if you want something tight and right, I would search elsewhere. And that's just for everybody's benefit. And I would search for tight and right on a private browser because you don't know who's going to open your computer later and check your history. Anyway, just up top, we have our first ever official Honest to God live show in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, February 27th. It's a Sunday. It's 8 p.m. Come on out with your girls. Come on out with your guys. Come out with your gay babes, whatevers. Don't say that. I think we can these days. I think whatever's is not nice. I feel okay. Don't bring the duds. Yeah, leave the duds at home. It's going to be incredible. It's at the gutter. Link in show notes for tickets. And we're also going to post it on Instagram. You guys, I'm so fucking excited for it. I can't wait to see you guys. And of course, we've got Nikki's. And of course, we will be reading all the five-star reviews with the names at the end of this podcast. Yes. Now that we've got that sorted, Claire, if you were to describe your week in a memoir, what would this chapter be called? Okay. I would say the name of my week is maybe Golden Girls. Okay. Which one are you? None of them, but it's just like the concept of being old. Okay. But like in the prime of your life. Because I spent this last week in LA literally hanging out with influencers and models every single day. Brag. I was amongst them, but I wasn't of them. Yeah. And they were all like in their early 20s, obviously dropped it gorgeous and definitely making way more money than I've ever made in my life at 22 and having a ton of fun. And I just felt very proud of myself because I feel like five years ago or even honestly two years ago, if I had done this, I would have felt really insecure and upset and jealous. I will say likely one year ago. Yeah. No. Well, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe last week. (laughs) Yeah, up till very recently, it would have been hard not to compare myself and be sad about my life. But I feel like I'm at this point where I've built the exact life I want. I'm really happy with who I am and like what my strengths and my weaknesses are. And I feel like I could just have a good time. And I left feeling happy for them and happy for myself. And I felt like that was a real moment of growth in me. Do you know what I mean? Like, I really am like, wow, like I've spent my whole twenties basically get to this point in my life where I'm living the exact life I want to build for myself and being around like literally the hottest 22 year olds in LA did not shake that. I wish I could give you a golden trophy for your golden girl era. (laughs) I don't even need it. That's the thing is the trophy is in my heart. Oh, wow. Your heart is made out of gold. I hope it doesn't (laughs) sink out of your butt. (laughs) Ashley, if you were to write a memoir about your life, what would this last week be called? This last week would be called The Dog Days of Ashley. That's where Ashley is trying to get a dog and they won't let her. The people, the people with the dogs won't let me in. And I, okay, you guys, I've decided that I'm finally at a time in my life. Here I am just ranting about how immature and stupid I am, but I actually feel like I'm ready to be a mother. And so I'm trying to adopt a dog 
And I keep on finding ones on the internet and then I fall head over heels in love with them. And then the place is like, actually, this dog requires a backyard. We're only adopting to people with backyards. I'm like, this is New York City. I don't understand what's happening. Like I deleted all my dating apps and started hyperfixating on finding a dog and getting rejected by all these dogs. I'm like, if I wanted to get rejected, I would have stayed on the dating apps. I don't understand what's happening here. No backyard. This is New York City. You can't just like be a dog rescue in New York City who has backyard as a requirement. Like, tell me that I'm not pretty enough. I don't understand what we're doing here. You're just hurting my feelings over and over again. But hopefully soon I'll have one. <laughs> I don't understand how like dogs in homeless shelters can be so picky. Yeah. Like, I think if you ask the dog, would you rather be in this cage or an apartment? They would be like in the walk up. Yeah, like I know it's a walk up, but like you and I take each other for walks like multiple times a day. So if we just added a dog into the mix, I feel like our schedules would stay pretty similar. Should we get into this week's book? Yes. Brutally Honest by Melanie Brown, aka Scary Spice of Spice Girls fame. This episode is mostly about an abusive relationship. So if that is something that is hard to hear, it might be a difficult episode for you. We will do our best to be sensitive, but the majority of this book details the way that she was treated by her ex and it might be very triggering yeah before we get into it I just want to say this has like been one of my top books that we've read so far I think Mel B delivered everything that we criticize most memoirists for leaving out and it's interestingly constructed which we normally are mad about but I was okay with this book really focuses on about 15 years and it's not the Spice Girls 15 years and I've never read something that was so honest and well done that I was okay with the most important facts being left out. Yeah, I would say I don't think I've ever been prouder of a memoirist than I was of Mel B. And I don't know if that's like condescending to be like, I'm proud of you. But I was so impressed by the way she wrote about these topics and her life and the amount of selflessness in it. I just think to talk about these things, she was really doing it to help people and herself. Like it is obviously self-healing, but... Also, I think that this book is really important and I'm really glad it exists. I know we talk a lot about like which books should and shouldn't exist. And this one, I'm like very happy it does. She's very aware in the book of how all of the information she's sharing about herself can be used against her. And I think she shares her personal experiences alongside a lot of like professional expertise, alongside a lot of self-healing. And I think it's really well done and I'm excited to talk about it. But yeah, it's definitely a toughie. Shall we dive in? Melanie Janine Brown was born May 29th, 1975 in Leeds, England. She grew up in a relatively working class home, the daughter of a Caribbean immigrant to England and a white mother. This book came out in 2018 and it starts with quite a bang. It opens up in December 2014. When she was 39 years old. Looking into the mirror, attempting suicide. Yes. Before we get into the heaviness of that, I do want to say this first sentence of the book made me laugh and it was maybe the last time I laughed in the whole book. So I think... No, there was like a couple laughs in this book. I actually think she did an incredible job of randomly snapping in just like a perfect anecdote. And you were just like, my God, she seems cool. She writes, I can tell you the answer. Melanie Brown, Scary Spice, that gobby girl from Leeds who ran riot through the whole bloody world with the Spice Girls. The girl cheeky enough to pinch a Lou roll from Nelson Mandela's house. Sorry to the late Mr. Mandela. I absolutely loved you and was beyond privileged to meet you. 
but I also know you had a little chuckle about the Lou roll and cocky enough to crack jokes with His Royal Highness Prince Charles. And I was like, whoa, that is maybe the most British paragraph I've ever read in my life. I'm like, that's basically a different language. I don't know what any of those adjectives were. Jerry did this too. Jerry had a couple of lines where it was like, oh my God, the Spice Girls are so British. They're so British and I think they're so like working class British. There's not a posh boarding school elite amongst them except for, I guess, posh. (laughs) Yeah, posh is the only one who's posh. I think that it is so funny to steal a loo roll from Nelson Mandela to translate. That's a toilet paper roll. I also think it's funny to think that he would know. Yeah, I mean, does he like round up his staff at the end of the day and say like, give me the full rundown of inventory? The count is off. (laughs) So back to the real premise of this chapter. It opens with her looking at herself in the mirror and slowly, one by one, swallowing pills of aspirin. She takes 200 pills before changing her mind and realizing that this isn't what she wanted. She tries to get out of the bathroom. She tries to help herself. She makes a couple of pretty incoherent phone calls to people who might be able to help her. And she explains the reason she ended up here. I can't pretend I'm not living in some twisted, violent hell. My life is a mess and I want out. So then she reveals that she actually had tried to kill herself one other time when she was 14. Staring back at me is a 14-year-old mixed-race girl called Melanie Janine Brown from Bog Standard, three-bedroom semi in Kirkstall, who felt so lonely, isolated, and misunderstood that she took a whole bunch of Anadin Plus pills she nicked from the family cupboard. My life has changed remarkably since then. And from photographs posted on my Instagram pages, anyone, not just that desperate 14-year-old, would feel a pang of jealousy looking at my glamorous, gilded existence. But it was all a lie, a big fat lie. My life was a sham. Behind the glitter of fame, I felt emotionally battered, estranged from my family. I felt ugly and detested by the very man who once promised to love and protect me, my husband and manager, Stephen. A man who, after 10 years of marriage, now had a library of sex tapes that could, as we both well knew, ruin my career and destroy my family. So this is where she starts to reveal that she was in a deeply abusive relationship and that she was essentially being blackmailed constantly by her husband who had as we just said husband and manager so he had control of her entire life and beyond what a typical husband and manager would he was a deeply abusive controlling person who had systematically taken control of everything she didn't have her own laptop she didn't have any access to the bank accounts he had cut her off from her entire family she had abandoned almost all of her friends he would take her phone and delete numbers delete messages this book is written less as like a chronological memoir and more about her experience and how it got to this point. So throughout the course of the book, there's no one single chapter of like, this is what it was like with Stephen. It just progressively, she drips in examples of the kind of man he was. And it's like progressively more and more horrifying. By the end of the book, he's like kicking her daughter's dog, calling her child ugly, the R word. He's torturing people. It's really horrific, the things he's doing to people. So this is during when she was a judge on the X Factor in England. And she reveals that in order to cope with her life, she had been doing a lot of cocaine. She says, I'd started using cocaine to get me through the run of the show to get me through living with Steven, which felt like neurotic claustrophobia and for deeper, darker reasons to get me through the emotional gridlock of being so geographically close to my family in Leeds and to my spice sisters in London on so many levels. I felt myself sinking. So at this point, she is completely emotionally and physically isolated from almost everyone in her life. 
during the first years of their relationship, he just cut her off person after person. She says, I want to talk about the connection between substance abuse and women who feel abused. Because since finally waking up from Stephen, I've discovered how commonplace this link is and how it's something we don't talk about. Something I really loved about this book is she makes it so much bigger than herself. I know it's a criticism we bring to other people is we're like, oh, you're just telling your own story. And I've gone back and forth of whether or not you're allowed to do that in your own memoir. But I think Mel B does such a beautiful job of using her experience to help other people. So after admitting kind of a huge scandal, I'd say in the celeb world, to like come clean and be like, I was doing a ton of cocaine as a working mother. She brings in all these facts from Women's Aid, which is a group that works with battered women about how women in any sort of abusive relationship are 15 times more likely to abuse alcohol and nine times more likely to abuse drugs than women in stable relationships. And then she does a lot of work justifying it And I think it really shows how afraid she was of being honest, but she does such a good job bringing the reader to like an empathetic place for anybody they might know who's going through something similar. Yeah, because I think that we do come from a place where it's just really hard to put yourself in someone's shoes when everyone would handle a situation like this differently. And on top of that, everyone has an idea of how they think they would handle a situation like this, which definitely differs from how they would handle it. I think she does a really good job of explaining to you, like, this is how I ended up here and this is my thought process and my thought process since. It is just really well done. So she also explains this dichotomy of her situation. She was in this horrible, abusive relationship where she was miserable every second at home, but she was also at the peak of her career in the last several decades. Basically, since Spice Girls, she had never been so loved. She was hosting The X Factor and... I mean, this kind of shows you where her self-esteem was at. She was so overwhelmed by the positive reception to her job as a judge on X Factor. The Guardian gives her an incredible review. They say Mel B, the surprise star of X Factor. An intelligent, witty man called Simon Hattonstone from a paper I'd only ever seen sticking out of a teacher's briefcase had met me and liked me. He didn't think I was annoying. He didn't think I was too much. He didn't think I was stupid. He thought I was funny, fanciable, and warm. I wanted Simon, Cheryl, and Louis to read his words. So we're going to try and use last names whenever we have a Simon, because in true British form, every single person in this book is named Simon. Is that like a real thing? Because about a third of the people in this book are called Simon. I think it is. I think everyone in England is named Simon or like, I don't know, Prince Harry. So this is what's going on in her life is on TV. She's at her height at home. She's truly so overwhelmed that she tries to end her own life. So she finally... One day goes to a hotel and has her PR guy, another guy named Simon. Simon Jones. Meet her there. And she just breaks down in hysterics. And she had never admitted it out loud to anyone before about how bad her marriage was. And she comes clean and says, the problem is I'm scared to leave him because he has an entire library of sex tapes that he could use to ruin my life. It's not even he has this library of sex tapes that he could use to ruin her life. It's he has this library of sex tapes that he will definitely use to ruin her life. He has his hand on a doomsday button. She also says that at this time in 2014, her father was on his deathbed. He actually wouldn't go on to die until 2017, but he was incredibly ill. He had cancer that he fought for a very long time. And after not speaking to her family for seven years, she got a call from her sister saying he's about to die. When she got to him in England, they immediately had a fight and she left. So this is where she's at emotionally. She is extremely estranged from her family. Her children barely know 
her family. The first half of this book takes us through this moment of desperation where she just doesn't know how to handle her situation and she attempts to take her own life and the things surrounding that point in her life. And then the book rewinds and takes us back to the beginning and we see it step by step. So we'll see later how she fell out with her family, how these things all came to this place where in 2014 she came to this decision. And creating the world that she was living in with this awful man, Stephen. You start to believe that is you who is the crazy one because all the time you feel you might be insane. You've got it all wrong. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know who to trust, who to like. You're the one who's responsible for being unhappy, for making him angry. You are the idiot, the slut, the bitch. It wasn't Stephen who upset Phoenix when she came home from school at the weekend and stayed in her room. It was you because she hated being around you. She told him that. You're an embarrassment to her, he'd say. You'd believe it. The hug she gave you when she left to go back to school felt too quick. Cheryl hadn't responded to your text. You forgot that he checked your phone. You forgot that he deleted messages whenever he wanted to. You allowed yourself to be isolated, allowed him to make all the rules. You didn't realize that you were stuck in some toxic game of control and that all the mind-bending manipulation had a purpose. Psychologists refer to a technique to assert absolute control called gaslighting. Is that what happened to me? She also talks about her drug use again. She says, the cocaine would come back out of my bag and up my nose. One line, another line, and yes, another and another. Just for now. I was, as Stephen delighted in telling me, a fucking mess. He'd wait till I was at my worst. Once, in fact, it was the day before I took the overdose, he pushed me in front of his computer and Skyped our family therapist, Dr. Charles Sophie, telling him that I needed to be institutionalized. He would do this, it seems like quite regularly, He'd say, look at her. She's off her face. She's a disgrace. She needs serious help. It seems like he was constantly videotaping her, not just having sex, but anytime she was fucked up, bring her daughter into the room and say, look how drunk your mom is. Get on videotape. Get her on videotape. Saying things like, I can't ever drink again. Just constant evidence piled up to prove that she was like an unfit human being, really. Yeah. But oftentimes it was him who would buy the alcohol. He would say, oh, you look like you need a drink. He'd bring her some alcohol. He'd get her drunk. And then when she went too far, he would catch it on camera and use it against her. And another thing that is devastating is she truly believed her children were protected. She thought that she was kind of a wall between them and this nightmare. And she wasn't. She talks about the construction of their house, how they always lived on the top floor was her bedroom. And there was always a floor between them and then the children below that because she didn't want them to be able to hear the screaming, the fighting, the toxic behavior. And she realizes now they weren't protected from any of it. But I mean, he had broken her down so hard. It's just really hard to get through this part. So she also shares a story from Randy, her hairdresser's perspective from the night of the overdose. He was one of the calls that she made when she realized she had made a mistake and wanted to take her life back. It's another really terrifying example of how much protection from the press comes before anyone's well-being. So she calls him at night. He called back. Stephen answered and told him it was fine. Nobody needed to do anything. So he shows up the next morning just to make sure that that's true. And when he shows up, he says that Stephen answers the door and is like, everything's totally good. So he goes up to get her makeup on. And Mel B is just in a fetal position, fucked up out of her mind on the bed, completely naked. And he says, Stephen, in front of the makeup artist, got down and started cuddling with her and kissing her on the back of the head. And Randy was like, it was very clear that she was about to die. And he was just cuddling her like nothing was wrong for some reason. And this is why it's so hard to even understand what celebrities go through because he then gets her fully dressed up, hair and makeup. He does her hair and makeup, puts her in a long fur and has her walk out to her car. And is like, by the way, there's paparazzi out there because there is. There's paparazzi surrounding the house. They're taking her to the hospital, but they have to dress her up like she's going to work. And just the fact that that was prioritized over her immediate health, they got her to a private hospital to keep it a secret. 
And the private hospital is like, she needs an acute medical intervention. She's like, she could die. So they get her to a larger hospital that can handle it. So she gets there and it turns out her health is really in danger. That it's not just getting the pills out of her stomach. is that they were in there for so long. They could cause horrible kidney and liver failure. And she writes again, with emotional abuse, you often don't even realize you're being abused. It's a sneaking cycle. And by the time you do realize, you've lost your confidence to such a degree that all you feel is that you are the mess. Abuse thrives in silence like a cancer. Everyone guesses what's going on. But if you don't say anything, no one can know for sure. Her daughter comes to see her, Phoenix. At this point, Mel B has three children. She has Phoenix with her first husband, who was a backup dancer for the Spice Girls. She has Angel with Eddie Murphy. And then she has Madison with Steven. Phoenix comes to see her and she talks about having to face Phoenix in that moment and how heartbreaking it was. I mean, I I just can't imagine. And I also want to clarify. So her plans were she had written notes to her children about directions for how to get to her parents' house. Because in her mind, she thought that everyone's life would be better if she were gone and her kids could go live with her mother. Mom, what the hell? Phoenix was standing by my bed, furious, shaking, full of rage. Of all the memories from those hours, it is the one that still floors me. There are things I can't remember, things I've blanked out, and then things I remember so clearly, it's like a knife through my heart. What does a mother say to a daughter? How do you explain? How do you apologize? How do you make them realize it was nothing to do with them? That your mind was so far gone, you weren't thinking straight. No mirror I ever looked and reflected back to me like Phoenix did in that moment. I saw myself through her eyes, and I knew I had to get myself together. I had to get her and my girls out. I had to be the woman and mother she deserved. I genuinely believed I'd always tried so hard to protect my kids from the rows, from the fights. Let's take this upstairs, I'd say, as calmly as I could when the shouting started. And I would see the children's eyes go wide or more worryingly, their little innocent faces freeze. And then she goes into talking a little bit about Jerry leaving the Spice Girls in 1998 and how in the moment she and the other girls, especially her because she and Jerry had been best friends, they were so hurt by Jerry just up and leaving. And now she realizes what it is to be in this place of absolute desperation, to not know how to talk about your mental health. It's kind of a fight or flight situation. She says, we make ourselves feel ashamed of so many things and the silence and the secrecy just add to our burdens. It's hard when you're proud, when you're frightened and when there are expectations on you not to rock the boat, but we need to be able to say, I'm in trouble, I need help. Plus, as hard as it is in regular life, these are people, she says that when Jerry left the Spice Girls, the share price of the record company dropped by 10p as a direct result of Jerry leaving the Spice Girls. I don't know what currency that is. When you're famous, it's not just your decisions affecting yourself. There's often a team of people who are employed by you or by institutions that are affected by your next move. So it's just so hard to be able to do what's right for yourself, which in Mel B's case would have been leaving Steven, but that would have destroyed her career because he was threatening her. And I think this is, again, is another example of why we liked Mel B's book so much because we find that a lot of these memoirists will experience something and then be completely incapable of looking back at other people's similar struggles with compassion. But she says, it was what Jerry needed to do about Jerry leaving. I was so upset that I got so angry. It took me years to get over it. Why didn't she tell me were the words that kept going round and round in my head. Why didn't she say? The funny thing is I get it now completely. I know that place she was in and I know I don't want any woman to ever feel she is alone. We make ourselves feel ashamed of so many things and the silence and the secrecy just add to our burdens. I just like love that she took a moment to be like, I see now what she was going through. And then also takes responsibility for how hard it is to stop and recognize somebody's cry for help. Yeah. The next day when she was gone, as soon as we realized she wasn't coming back, like we couldn't be there for her friend because her leaving 
impacted so much of our business that we were all wrapped up in the fallout. And I think it, it's really illuminating and also kind that she can look back and be like, I wasn't there for her when she needed it. But also this is the reality for all of my friends too, as their lives are going on as well. Yeah. So Steven is calling constantly. He's being blocked from knowing where she is. And she decides that she is going to clean herself up and go to the X Factor finale. She has been told by every single doctor, every single medical professional, you cannot leave this hospital. She insists that she be discharged and promises she'll be back right after. But she insists on leaving, going to the finale, and making a public appearance without her wedding ring on to send a message to Steven. However, when he sees this message, he takes the youngest daughter, Maddie, that was also his, and flees to Los Angeles. So basically she goes out there and she's covered in bruises because after she had taken all the pills in the bathroom, she got locked in the bathroom. And when she decided she didn't want to do it anymore, she was trying desperately to get out. So she's hurling her body at the door. She's locked in there for some reason, which I'm curious about why she was locked in there. She ends up at the hospital. They're poking and prodding her. They have tubes going in and out. So when she shows up to the X Factor, which she had already missed a couple episodes of, and she's covered in bruises without a wedding ring. Everybody, of course, assumed she has left her physically abusive husband. So she goes and does this performance and is so proud of herself for doing it, even though she was told she couldn't. She takes a lot of pride in what an incredible performer and entertainer she is. And she goes right back to the hospital where she has to be put back on every machine. And she completely shuts down. She's got her PR team making sure that none of the press gets out because apparently there is a law in Britain that says if it has something to do with a medical problem, They're forbidden from sharing it unless it's absolutely confirmed in the public. So she goes, I couldn't face anyone. I couldn't face the questions, the grief, the disappointment, the pressure to explain something you can't explain. I totally understood why Jerry had left all those years before. She had wanted to disappear. Animals hide to lick their wounds. So do we. If you are someone like me, you can hide better because you have people answering phones for you. You have a network in place, a system to make it easier. So I remain trapped behind a wall of guilt, shame, and worthlessness. I'd been hit in the past, but bruises fade. If you feel emotionally abused, whether it's a partner, a boss, or even a parent, you can't see any scars, but they go way deeper, right down to your very sense of self. I felt empty, worthless. I love Steven. I wanted him to love me. There must be a reason why these men never loved me. And that reason must be me, I told myself. There's so many people that we read me go, you weren't ready to write this book yet. And I think she's really done so much work and like really gets to the root of how did somebody who seemed to have everything and seemed to be so strong and charismatic get here? So what happens next is equally heartbreaking, I would say, is everything we've read so far. I don't want to say more, but it is really tough. She gets the police involved because Stephen has taken Maddie to Los Angeles. She tries to get a report written up for an abduction, but she says an American citizen who has parental responsibility takes his child, also an American citizen, out of the country without the knowledge and consent of the mother. It's not an abduction. It's a domestic dispute. So they're asking all these questions about the bruises, about the abuse, about all these things. And she's like, what we need to focus on right now is Maddie. And they're like, well, there's like a lot of layers to this. And she's like, okay, but there's one most important layer. And they're not hearing her. Meanwhile, because of her appearance on The X Factor, there's a lot of public interest in the story. It's really causing the tabloids to go wild. And then Dr. Sophie, the family therapist, comes to talk to Melanie and basically says, you have to go back. You have to get back with him for now just to make sure that you maintain 
parental rights. If you don't want him to get full custody, you need to get back together with him until we can make a better plan. On Monday, 15th, December 2014, all I knew was that I was going to get Maddie back by whatever means, and then I would leave Stephen. But on Monday, the 22nd of December, I made an announcement. I'm going to drop all the charges and go back to Stephen, I told everyone. At the time, I said it's because I loved him, but only now I can explain it's that my longtime family therapist told me that I would lose custody of the children if I went in with all of his evidence of my drug use, the fact that I just tried to commit suicide, they would not let me keep custody of my kids. I'd be seen as an unfit mother. I guess I see that perspective. I wonder if it was like really the only way I could see how it's possible. But like, my God, the way that he had control over her life is so devastating. She says it was one week after the episode at the Kensington apartment, which is where she took her overdose. When he saw me, Stephen's words of greeting were, you fool. So at this point of the book, she takes us back to the beginning. And I I actually love the way she does this. She starts to describe her parents and her relationship to them and the upbringing that got her here. She gives us a chapter that's completely dedicated to her dad. And it's this really sweet in memoriam, essentially. And she talks about how much he loved her and how he was such a doting father. He was so charismatic. But she does say, I've looked for a man like my father and I have confused all his good and bad qualities, his strengths and weaknesses and defaulted to the oldest scars my heart knows. I see control and emotional withdrawal in a guy and some part of my brain goes, there, Melanie, that's a real man, a strong man. A man will criticize me and deep down my brain will react. This man really sees you. You know this man. You understand him. You need to make this man love you. As a Spice Girl, I went around the world shouting from the rooftops, don't take any shit from a man and telling other girls to stand up for themselves. So I went out with some great guys, but ultimately the ones she married, all in their own ways, difficult men who on some primal level carried with them darker shadows of my father. It is a pattern I have to recognize and one I have to break by trying to understand my father more. She then talks about where her father came from. He comes from Nevis in the Caribbean. His family moved to the UK when he was young and he was not interested. His parents moved to the UK and left Melly's dad and his sister Kathleen with their grandmother, who was 106 years old. And he was apparently treated like a queen on the island. And he didn't like to talk about it. So eventually, once his parents had settled in the UK, they sent for the kids. He did not want to leave. He tried to hide on the island so that he didn't have to leave. And she would ask him, you know, tell me about Nevis. And he just didn't want to relive those days. She also calls her grandparents black grandma and black grandpa. (laughs) And then she calls her white grandparents, white grandma, white grandpa. And I thought she just did it at first to distinguish for the reader, but it seems like that's what the family calls them. So then she talks about her grandparents' experience coming to England from Nevis. It's a really good chapter about understanding the racism that her dad experienced, the racism that she experienced, and that her father never spoke to her about any of it. So everything she knows about his life She's had to learn through like newspaper articles and trying to understand other people's experiences at the time because in her family, everything was kept a secret. Yeah, they were really not a big talk about your feelings family. We already told you she mentions trying to kill herself at 14 years old and she never really mentions any of the fallout or anything that happened after that other than going back to school. Her teachers were like, where are your assignments? And she was like, I don't know. I was in the hospital. Sorry. So she gets into a chapter called The Coin and she talks about the other side of her father's parenting. And up till now, she had been very complimentary, talking about how much they loved each other, how proud he was of her, how when she was little, he would like take her to the park to prepare for sports day at school. And they were so close. But as she became a teenager, things started to change. She says, I was grounded constantly for not doing well enough at school, not wearing the right clothes, not eating my breakfast, saying something inappropriate. I felt he was constantly annoyed and disappointed in me. I had no idea what had gone wrong with me and my dad. 
but it was making me desperately miserable. So miserable, I ended up taking that overdose. She also, in her childhood, joins a friend at dance class. And this is where she finally feels herself again. So while she's going through these changes in her family, things are honestly pretty up and down, it seems like. And then she takes a dance class and she says, every inch of my body felt charged with a passion I'd never known. I could do this. It wasn't like maths or spelling at school. This was easy. This was fun. And there were loads of girls next to me who even I could see weren't getting it right. So she all of a sudden finds her calling, essentially, and that is what drives her through the rest of her childhood. But in her teenage years, her dad got more and more unhappy. He takes it out on the kids, the mom. She says that when she would come down the stairs to school on a Tuesday, he'd say, I'll see you Friday, Melanie. And that basically meant that she had done something wrong and she wouldn't know what she had done wrong or what the punishment would be until Friday afternoon, at which point he would take out a belt or there was like a belt and then there was like a slap and different punishments were doled out weekly. And then she says, and this is so interesting coming on the heels of the Jamie Lynn book, that when my parents eventually divorced a few months short of their 30th anniversary, they still spoke every day on the phone. Ironically, they split up over the house that I bought them. My dad refused to move in until he was ready. My mom spent three months on her own and realized she was a lot happier. I understood. They were different people and they needed their own spaces. I mean, again, in contrast with the Jamie Lynn experience, mature and understanding way of seeing it. She had lived with her father. And even though she loved and adored her father, she could understand how his strict rules that were for her too, that she couldn't have friends over the mom. The mom was also very controlled that she deserved freedom in her own life. And I just think that that's a big way to look at it considering that, I mean, I'm sure it's a bit of a mindfuck to be like, I tried to buy my parents a house so they could have a better life and they ended up getting divorced. (laughs) Yeah, and this is also a section that really sets up for you what she told us earlier about her confusing her father's good and bad qualities in terms of her looking for a man herself. There are a lot of her dad's worst behaviors that we see come back later with Steven. And then Steven's much worse, but... I think about my dad so much now. I understand so much with my dad was motivated by fear. When I was a teenager, he was frightened for me. Frightened that he had produced this loud, emotional, in-your-face girl who loved to dance and go out and didn't want to go to university or get a job in an office. I think he felt like a ton of men I've been involved with have felt that I needed to be controlled and kept in my place. In his case, I think he felt it was the only way to keep me safe. He worried I'd get pregnant or get into drugs or get in with the wrong crowd. He didn't believe that I would ever do anything with my life. Stop dancing, he'd tell me. Just give it up. But then when she does leave home at 16, which is pretty early, she gets a job as basically a showgirl. She's the youngest person on the cast and she has them come out and see her. And of course, she's in like a super scantily clad outfit and she's shaking her high knee all over the place. And he's so upset that he like leaves after 10 minutes. But afterwards, he comes up to her and says, it was very good, Melanie. So he is proud of her. Even if she's making choices he doesn't agree with. I feel like that's my dad. If I have like a tweet about sex go viral, he'll be like, I'm proud of you for making jokes that people relate to. So she leaves home at 16. She's obsessed with dancing and she's great at it. She wins a lot of awards, but she also isn't too deterred by losing. So she's entering competitions nonstop. And every time she doesn't place, she's like, all right, next competition. Let's see what's up. She then goes to dance college, which she flunks out of because I guess she just like doesn't go really. She says she was better than everybody there. So it was a waste of her time. And she'd already been a professional dancer. So she says it felt like a step backwards. So then she moves back home and starts scouring the stages magazine for auditions, which is how we know Jerry 
Carrie also found the Spice Girls audition. But it was her mom. She was moving home. Her dad is like, you got to get a real job. They're giving her five pounds a week to get by. She was sleeping <laughs> on the couch. But her mom was clipping everything from the stage every morning for her. And it was her mom who found the ad for the Spice Girls. Are you 18 to 23 with the ability to sing slash dance? Are you streetwise, outgoing, ambitious, dedicated? Heart management are a widely successful music industry management consortium currently forming a choreographed singing, dancing, all-female pop act record recording deal. So she doesn't talk a ton about the Spice Girls throughout this. It's mostly about their reunions and her relationship with them during these awful marriages that she had. But we do get a few flashbacks to her times as the young emerging Spice Girls. She talks about how they were all super confident and yet the guys who were originally managing them would say, oh, you have to lose a few pounds. And she's like, it's such a good example of how easy it is to break even the most confident woman's spirit. She says that she herself had never suffered from an eating disorder because she'd always been dancing and so tiny that it was never hard for her to keep her shape. But then she tells this adorable story that I'm obsessed with about how her and Jerry on the weekends would go out clubbing in the town. Everyone else would go home. And at the time, their band was called Touch. And she says Jerry would go right up to the DJ and be like, Touch is in the house. And she's like, nobody knew who we were. But Jerry knew that if you want to be a star, you have to act like a star. At the time, it made me laugh out loud, but it's a real example of how you really have to believe in yourselves to make others believe in you. Kim Kardashian has acted like a superstar ever since she was just one of Paris Hilton's best friends. When Simon Cowell was a post-room boy at EMI, he dressed like David Cassidy, the heartthrob of the day, and made sure everyone noticed him. I've sat at dinner with Rita Ora, and she is so flirty and confident. You walk away thinking she is the sexiest woman you have ever met. She did actually flash her boobs to everyone at the table, but she can completely get away with it because you know she knows exactly what she's doing. She's in charge of who she is. That it was one of the most insightful sentences about Rita Ora ever written because I think we are all walking around every day with the question, why Rita Ora? Or even who Rita Ora? <laughs> What's up with Rita Ora? Like, why do I know who she is? Anyway, so then we flash to meeting Eddie Murphy, which is a really fascinating part of this book because I will say I don't feel like I walked away from this book liking Eddie Murphy at all. And she does not say a nasty word about him. This was such an interesting experience for me because I feel like I'm not someone who is like, oh, love, bomby, love, love, bomby. But I walked through this book going through all the emotions that she went through. Like I fell in love with Eddie Murphy and then I was horrified by Eddie Murphy. So she starts this chapter called Eddie. She goes, there are times in your life, especially in my life, when unexpected things happen and you go with it and it turns out to be something beautiful. The word that sums up those situations is, I'll check my thesaurus because this is a very long one for me. Serendipitous. I just want to call out that sentence because she has this running bit throughout the whole book. Whenever she has a big word, she references the thesaurus she looks it up in. It's so endearing. And it also breaks my heart because one of her running insecurities is that she's worried she's dumb. And that comes from the fact that she wasn't good at school. And she later found out she had like ADHD and she's dyslexic. And obviously she's an incredibly intelligent woman. Like look how successful she is. She just wasn't great at school. But one of the ways these men are able to control her is because her dad was always disappointed in her academics. And so she thinks she's stupid. And just the fact that every time she uses a big word, she's like studying her thesaurus. I'm like, Mel B, you are smart, but it is so funny that you're like copying to it, that you're like, here's a word I had to specifically look up. <laughs> so she met Eddie Murphy at his own house and she claims it was love at first sight. And I have to say, I believe it. She's like, it was one of those moments where our eyes met and the whole world stood still. I felt like I had known this man all my life and I was staring at my destiny in his face. They met May, 2006. She had just gotten out of a five-year long relationship with a woman. And that's the single sentence we get about her in the entire book. She says she was a very private woman. I will not speak to it. I will respect her boundaries. Eddie Murphy wants to meet Mel B. And so her friend yeah. is like, hey, Eddie wants to meet you. Would you go out with him? And she goes, I don't know. I guess I could go to a dinner party with him. And so the friend calls right back and goes, what about Friday? He's having a dinner party Friday. 
So she goes. They see each other from across the room. The whole world stops. She panics and she goes to the bathroom. And then when she comes out of the bathroom, he's standing right there and introduces himself. And she's like, oh, I forgot that I'm, I have another thing at the Mondrian. Ashley, what? Mondrian. She says, oh, I forgot I had another thing at the Mondrian. <laughs> I, I never knew how to say it. It's right next to the comedy store and I used to go to the bathroom there sometimes. She's like, I forgot I have another party at the Mondrian. Bye. And she just goes home, takes all her makeup off and gets in bed. And then her friend calls back and is like, where the fuck are you? We moved the party to the Mondrian. Eddie's looking for you. So she puts all her makeup and the same outfit back on, goes to the hotel. There's like a seat for her right next to Eddie. And she's like, I got to go to the bathroom. And he's like, you can't go to the bathroom by yourself because last time you went to the bathroom, you left my party. He goes to the bathroom with her. Waits outside, goes back to the table. She says they were walking through the restaurant with his hands on her shoulders. He was like driving her to the bathroom and back. And she's like, it was just wonderful. We held hands under the table the whole night. They started seeing each other all the time. It was love bombing. He had decided he was ready for a wife and he picked her and he was going to settle her into a spot that he had carved out. After the dinner party, he rang me and said, Melanie, do you mind if I see you every day for a few days? but I don't like going out. So will you come to my house? It was such an unusual, but honest thing to say. I laughed and said, yes. What she explains now is that Eddie Murphy, I guess is so rich and so powerful that he has just created like a castle and an estate. All of his friends come to him. I mean, there's a full staff. She says she, he never leaves his house unless he has to. Anything you want, he'll have it postmated to you that you don't have to leave. He has buffet dinners every Friday where all of his friends come over. He has like a small little community that is based at his house and he doesn't like to leave. I mean, even his children are homeschooled, but they have a full-on schoolroom in the house where a tutor comes every day. His kingdom was magical. You'd walk in one room and Stevie Wonder would be there playing on a piano. I spent hours talking to Stevie about music and he knew lots about the Spice Girls, which surprised me. Stevie and I would sit and hold hands because that is the way he connects with people and we drink tequila shots together. Then everything at everyone at Eddie's was a surprise. Denzel Washington was another regular at Eddie's. He was someone I was totally in awe of until one night he knocked on our bedroom door, drunk as a lord, and talked and joked for hours like one of my uncles after a night out. He even tried to crash out in the bed with us because he could hardly move. Eddie has an amazing chef, and every evening at 6 p.m. there would be a huge buffet and tons of people would appear and sit around the house eating. There was something solid beneath the formal Hollywood exterior that Eddie wanted me to see. I felt it in the way he held my hand. It felt, at the same time, protective, vulnerable, and forthright. He didn't flirt or make sexual innuendos like most guys I'd gone on dates with. He was the perfect gentleman. So then she tells this crazy story that I just want to say. So she one day wants to go out and get a coffee. And he's like, there's coffee here. And she's like, no, I want one from the coffee bean. And he's like, okay, we'll go get somebody to pick it up for you. And she's like, no, I want to go fucking get a coffee with no staff. So she makes him drive in his own car without any staff to the coffee bean to pick up a coffee. And she says he gets there and he's so stressed because I guess he's a germaphobe and he's never out in public. But then once he's in line, he starts like cutting up a joke about... God, this is so, (laughs) this is so old man, famous comedian. He looked at the guy, then he looked at the coffee menu with dozens of different varieties of coffee. And he went into a completely off the cuff comedy routine about not knowing what the hell coffee to order. Latte, cold press, cappuccino, iced, vanilla, soy, Americano, Milano, man, oh man, oh man. He got louder and louder and everyone was laughing. And I could see that he was transformed by that interaction. Absolutely. In the moment when we left, he looked at me and said, I love coffee bean. After that, he wanted to go to the coffee bean again and again. Imagine coming out of your castle for the first time in decades and being like, a flat white? Ah, What the hell? Kids these days. He also is famous for going to the coffee bean now. Like he's always at the coffee bean. You're in LA right now. You could probably go to the coffee bean and find him. 
then she says that later he's always seen with his next girlfriends at the coffee bean. And she's like, that's my thing. I introduced you to the coffee bean. You never would have heard of the coffee bean if it wasn't for me. (laughs) But she also talks about how fascinated she was by the opposite versions of fame that they had. She says, we lived in two different worlds. He had been famous for most of his life and had built himself his own private kingdom behind walls where he could look after and live with his family and friends. I spent my life trying to break down walls. In the very beginning of the Spice Girls, all the five of us ever wanted to do is kick down barriers. And she does have this thing where she's constantly underestimated. She's constantly having to barge in from the early days of the Spice Girls when they realized their management team wasn't really looking out for them, wasn't really going to get them the career they wanted. They were all five of them in phone booths calling up every manager they'd ever heard of trying to get new representation and like really charging forth. Whereas he had kind of been like, all right, I've created this career and now I retreat and just do exactly what I want. Where she's like, I kind of had to keep on bashing in and reminding people who I am and what I'm worth, you know? And that does get fucking tiring. Then she gets into, and this is interesting because I don't remember the media fallout of this relationship at all. I know, Ashley, you said you like have... I have like a very vague recollection of it. I remember when they broke up that the general conversation was Eddie Murphy good, Mel B bad. So she uses this book to set the record straight and she goes, Eddie told me when we had been together for a matter of weeks that he wanted to get married and he wanted to have a baby. It was written years later that it was a casual relationship and it was also said that we were together for three months. But in total, we were together for almost nine months and it was Eddie who pushed every step of the way. And she goes, he didn't have to push too hard because like, I was obsessed with him. And I believe that. He is such a controlled man that clearly he's in control and he likes a schedule. and Things don't just happen to him. I can't imagine that Eddie Murphy doesn't know how birth control works. Also, right after this relationship, as it comes out, as soon as they break up, he marries somebody else for two weeks. Yeah. So he was like looking for a wife. Yes. He was looking for a wife in a way that was textbook love bombing. I mean, this is what it is. They like make their intentions very clear. He gives like a faux vulnerability up front. He lets her into his life and then says, okay, now you have to drop your walls with me. She says, what do you want to know? I laughed. I'm Mel B, Scary Spice, and you're Eddie Murphy. He shook his head, but that's not who you are, Melanie. You know that. When you are this guarded person and then you get vulnerable with someone, it's like you're just like emotionally tethering yourself to them. She really did let her guard down and like let herself in. And he was kind of playing a game, it seems like. I feel like when you have that much money and that much power, nothing's like authentic. Do you know what I mean? Because it's just so easy to fall in love with the situation. She tells this crazy story about how rich Eddie Murphy is where our first holiday was to the Four Seasons in Hawaii. The boxer Sugar Ray Leonard is a great mate of Eddie's and he came too. Eddie made the plumber change the toilet in the room. I remember asking him, is it because of your OCD? He looked at me and winked and said, no, it's because I can. And we both roared our heads off. I mean, she really hypes up how magical this existence was, but it doesn't feel real. And so she felt that there was something like a little bit off. She says, as incredible as it was, there was something about Eddie's house that was like a gilded cage. I'm too independent to live like that. Another one of the problems is that Eddie has this entire community that is his entourage. And it is just a team of yes people who benefit from his wealth and don't want the gravy train to stop. And so because she wanted to be alone with him so often, I think she made a lot of enemies on the inner circle. She was always asking him if they could go on vacation, just the two of them without staff. She was always saying, I'm not coming over until your friends leave. I want it to just be the two of us. But nevertheless, he wanted to get married. He flies out her whole family. They all fly first class because he wants to meet her parents and ask for approval. They love him. This is the first boyfriend of hers that they've ever truly just been head over heels with. Dad said yes, which was a relief because I had already designed a beautiful wedding ring from Cartier. I remember sitting there that night looking at my dad and Eddie across the table trying to work out which of them looked happiest. And then it struck me. Melanie, Eddie looks just like dad. They did. Look at the photographs yourself. The resemblance is uncanny. And it is funny that like in all of these men, there's something in her father. And she even admits, 
It's strange how it's only later that you see the patterns in your relationships. Even with Eddie and my dad sitting next to each other, looking for all the world like long lost brothers, real similarity wasn't just the looks. It was that they both came from incredibly tough backgrounds and were both under their family-oriented, charming exteriors, very controlling men. Dad, the welder from Leeds, and Eddie, the Hollywood superstar, both created homes in which they made all the rules. And if you couldn't follow the rules, you were going to find yourself in trouble. She talks about how he liked to have her in sight at all times. Like she would disappear into a room and he'd be like, I can't see you. And she would be like, but you can hear me. She says, I'd never met a man who wanted to possess me so completely. It was intoxicating because I had fallen in love with him, but also stifling because I've always been very independent, very much my own person. And it does seem like if he's what you want, he's like a great guy. She had Phoenix at the time, who I guess was falling behind in school. And Eddie would look over her report card. He had the teacher send every one of her report cards ever to him so that he could like look and see what the problem was with why her grades were slipping. And then he started homeschooling Phoenix with the rest of his kids so that her grades could come back up and she could get the help she needed to catch up in school. Yeah. And Phoenix was in heaven. So Phoenix now has his five other kids to play with. She has, I mean, beautiful mansion to hang out in all the time. She would bring her dog Lordy over. So Mel B says that even when she would go back to their Los Feliz house for like a little time off from the chaos, Eddie would call and Phoenix would be like, yes, let's go over to Eddie's house. Eddie's house is fucking awesome. And like, how could she say no? So then she gets pregnant. She says, we met in May and now in August I was pregnant. And they were stoked on it. They'd only known each other for a couple of months, but it wasn't like, oh, fuck, what do we do now? They were so happy. This was such a good thing. But the problem was she was terrified of losing her independence. So she came up with a pretty bad idea. And I love it because she had one of the worst ideas I've ever heard. And then she sort of throws her two friends under the bus and blames it on them. I will say the eventual fallout seems like Eddie's fault. Okay, so basically she's like, in your home, it's very much your home. It's not our home. Your estate can never be our home. I want to keep my house in Los Feliz for my independence. You keep your estate because you fucking love it. Let's buy a house that'll be our house where we'll raise our baby in Malibu. And we can, you know, go back to our other places sometimes if we want to. I do think owning three homes in one city is ridiculous. And he... I just don't understand. She's like, yeah, we could spend a couple days a week there as just a trio, a little family. And then sometimes I'll be at my house. Sometimes I'll be at your house. How could that be the answer? How could there be a problem where it's too many houses and the solution is to get a new house? She says, he wouldn't have it. Melanie, this makes no sense at all. Are you completely crazy? I'll buy the house. We'll both live there. I point blank refused. If Eddie bought the house, then it would turn into another Eddie land and I didn't want that to happen. We started to row about it. That is even weirder to me though, that his answer was like, no, I should own the house outright. The house shouldn't exist. It, it doesn't even matter who owns it. The idea is just that like, if you guys can't, between two houses, find a middle ground. She says he'd turn it into a joke. Hey, he'd say, why don't we buy Phoenix a house and Lordy a house and let's buy a house for the pet rabbit. But I stuck to my guns. This was the only solution I could think of. Neither of us would back down and Eddie point blank refused to even talk about it anymore. That drove me mad. I started to question my relation with him and pick, pick, pick away everything. And then this is another red flaggy ass line. I knew he was a father figure to me. I knew that in his own lovely, sweet, generous way, he was as controlling as my dad was. Yikes. They talked before she got pregnant about getting married on Christmas or around Christmas. But then she got pregnant and said, I don't want to get married until after the baby is born because I don't want to be pregnant in my wedding dress. But then she's going home and she misses all her friends and all her friends are like, we haven't seen you in so long. You've been lost in Eddie. And she is confiding them. She's like so stressed out this house situation. She doesn't want to lose her independence. And then she throws these two documentary filmmaking sisters, Nicola and Tina Collins, under the bus. Apparently, they give her the advice. If he's not listening to you, give him the silent treatment. I thought about it. 
I could move back into my house with Phoenix, but I knew that he would keep sending someone over every day to pick us up and Phoenix would want to go and I'd end up giving in. Suddenly, I knew exactly what I had to do. I'd go home to Leeds. I'd have a bit of distance. I'd be able to think and be with my family. It was exactly what I needed. So here's where... And Ashley said this. And once she said it, I was like, okay, I see your point. It seems to get a bit murky. According to Mel B, what happens next is she decides she's going to go spend Christmas with her family in Leeds, England. She doesn't tell Eddie. He's calling nonstop. He's calling her. He's calling her friends. He's calling her family. He literally just doesn't know where she is, supposedly. And she's fully giving him the silent treatment. She won't speak to him because she decides they just need some space. He finally gets in touch with her mom. And apparently the way he gets in touch with her is he goes through every British phone number she's ever called from his house and finally gets the mom. Yeah, But then it's like, once he gets a hold and he knows where she... Like, she's with her family for Christmas. She's allowed to do that. So she gets home and by the time she's gone there, Eddie has gotten to her mom and her mom goes, why are you being like this? He loves you. He wants to look after you. He's an amazing man. Your dad thought he was the bee's knees. He'll never let you want for anything. Go home and make it up. This is your hormones going crazy. So she like spends the day going out with her childhood friend, Charlotte. They shop, they laugh. She has a great time. And she says, a day later, I felt so much better and my head had cleared. My mom was right. Not that I was going to tell her that. I was going to go back. I loved this man. He loved me and we could make it work. Do you think there had to have been a lot more than just the house thing? Like make it work? Like that can't just be about the house fight. So here's where it gets confusing. According to this timeline, she couldn't have been gone for more than three days. She flies to Leeds because she's upset. She goes out with her friend. And then on the third day, she wakes up and is like, I'm going to go back to him. In three days, she's on the flight, ready to go back home to him. What I didn't know was that when I was on the plane, Eddie was going on the red carpet to promote his film, Dream Girls. As he walked down the carpet, a Dutch TV reporter... God, this is like the biggest day for Dutch TV, huh? I can't believe a Dutch TV reporter did so much damage to Mel B's life. A Dutch TV reporter asked him about his relationship with me. So are you happy with her, the reporter asked, because she is pregnant with your child? Eddie's response was this. You're being presumptuous because we're not together anymore and I don't know whose child that is until it comes out and has a blood test. You shouldn't jump to any conclusions, sir. Those words repeated on every cable channel and every internet entertainment site were rocketing through the stratosphere causing havoc in the media who had discovered that I was about to land in LA any minute. I also just want to say, LOL, because Angel, the child that comes out of this union, is an Eddie Murphy twin. I've never seen a little girl look so much like Eddie Murphy in my life. It is heartbreaking, though. She says, I do not to this day have any idea why Eddie would have said those words. It was completely out of character for him to talk about his private life, and it was even more out of character for him to say something so damning and nasty about someone he loved. The question, why, has haunted me for more than a decade. And honestly, from now on, me too. It's also haunting me for the rest of my life. So, spoiler, it is his baby, but he never really walks back those terms, and she and Eddie have not ever really reconciled their relationship. And I do feel like for him to say that publicly and then never publicly apologize, clarify, the information has been clarified. The fact that he has not spoken publicly about this since is really freaky. He does not take ownership of that child for another decade. Mel B is trying to figure it out. She thinks part of the problem was that so many people on his entourage hated her. And then her friend Nicola, who gave her the silent treatment advice, said, The main thing, though, is that he thought you weren't coming back. No woman had ever treated him like that. So? So she says that he knew he fucked up because by the time she landed in L.A., he had sent his own personal security team to pick her up. And she's like, I didn't want to accept the security, but she was so mobbed by paparazzi that she was like actually afraid for the babies. So she gets in the car and calls him and gets a phone call. It was Eddie. I was caught off guard, he said. I didn't know what was going on with us. I didn't know what to say. I won't repeat what I said to Eddie, but Eddie cut me off. Distraught, I told the driver to take me to the Four Seasons Hotel. 
I called Eddie one last time. I was hurt. I was devastated and I was raging. Thanks a lot. I said, that was really fucking stupid of you to say that. I can't forgive you for this. And I'm going to make you do a DNA test. He said, well, you left me. He sounded cold, distant. I left you, Eddie, but I didn't leave you, leave you. Well, that's what I thought you did. There was a silence. I said, I'm going to have to leave you now because that is what you've done to me. I then walked into my hotel suite with Phoenix, sat on my bed and burst out sobbing. God, the things Phoenix has seen. Phoenix has been through some shit. But basically from then on out, Eddie never contacts her again. She calls his team. They would just say, Eddie has your message. She never called her back. When she went into labor, they called, confirmed that Eddie has heard the birth went well. But he does not speak to her again. No. And she gets a DNA test. She publicly releases the information. It is definitively Eddie Murphy's child. But the press never lets up on this. She says that she had been painted by the media as a gold digger, a tramp, a woman who had conned a man into having a baby, a 32-year-old woman soon to give birth to a child whose father refused to acknowledge or claim it. Saturday Night Live was doing bits about her. The narrative in the news was because they'd been together for such a short amount of time, essentially it was that she had conned Eddie into hooking up with her, gotten herself pregnant for the check. She's so in love with him to this day. That's what hurts so much is reading this. She still says Eddie Murphy is the love of my life. She still genuinely in her heart of hearts believes she will never love or be loved the way her relationship with Eddie Murphy was. That was like one of the few blind spots I felt that she had looking at her past. Because I do think as an adult woman, 15 years out of it, I think there should be some recognition in yourself that if you were so unhappy in that relationship that under a year in pregnant with a baby, you felt you needed to flee to your mom's house. That wasn't like a great love. (laughs) Also, if you are in a relationship that can just snap over the course of a weekend, to be in a relationship with someone who would say that about you, to be in a relationship that can just crumble like that, no communication, it just was there one day, gone the next. That's not a relationship that was a great love. And what's worse is so then right away, he started dating somebody else. And within a month, he was married to another woman. And that relationship did dissolve after two weeks. But like, clearly he was just looking for a wife. So she is pretty fucking traumatized. She is a new mother to a baby with no father. She's still in the four seasons afterwards because she feels her house is so covered in press. She's not safe there. Her mom comes out to help her. And she is just like in hiding at the four seasons, calling Eddie on the dot every three weeks to see if he'll respond to no response. She has one line about how bullshit this is. She says... This for me now was about girl power. No woman should be treated the way Eddie had treated me. I had loved him. I had done nothing wrong. I wasn't going to give a story to the papers, but I was going to get the best lawyer I could. And I was going to make Eddie take a DNA test after my baby was born and show the world he was the father. I mean, there is a little bit of anger there, but I feel like she still overall loves him so fucking much and it's devastating. Angel was actually born on Eddie Murphy's birthday. So this is when she meets Steven. And I think that really explains a lot of what's going on here. Like how could she have gotten such a bad relationship with such an evil man? And the context of the fact that she's a new mother with no father. She already has a baby and the entire public is turned against her. Really explains how she ended up in his arms. I feel like there is this thing of love and relationship hangover when you get love bombed where you're in such a place where you're like, all right, this is the relationship I'll be in forever. And then it snaps. And then you're like, okay, now I'm just dating again. No. It reminded me of Naya Rivera. Yes. Naya Rivera did that where she got out of that horrible Big Sean relationship. And it was the exact same thing where she had been villainized and demonized in the media. And so she turned to somebody who would literally sign a contract saying, you are loved. The way Steven had originally come into her life is, 
I guess he was like a leech on the peripheral of Hollywood people. She met him at a party once. He's a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend. He's a friend of everybody's friend's friend. So he sees her at an airport and he goes up to her and very cheekily is like, listen, I told those girls that I knew a Spice Girl. Can you just talk to me and make it seem like we're friends so that they will have sex with me? And she thought that was funny or whatever. So she went along with it. And I guess they exchanged numbers. She goes home. So now flash forward. She's, as we said, Alone in the Four Seasons with a baby whose baby daddy will not claim the baby. Vulnerable as hell, hormonal, scared, sad, heartbroken. She gets a call from him immediately, like three or four days after the birth. Steven is like, hey, I'd love to come over and bring my daughter if that's okay. Meanwhile, Eddie has just gotten engaged to Tracy Edmonds. So Melanie is like in a bad place and she's like, okay, you can come meet us. And right away, she comes over. He brings his daughter. He's so kind. He's so sweet. She's not attracted to him, but... She likes the attention and she likes that he seems like such a gentleman. And Melanie's mom feels the exact opposite. She says, I don't like that guy, Melanie. There's something not right about him. He's a suavo, which Melanie explains, but I know exactly what that... I mean, I feel like that's a perfect word. He is a fucking suavo. That's what we in the United States call a slippery bitch. Steven made me feel like I was the center of his whole world. He didn't focus on anyone except for me and Angel. But I realized later he was sucking up everything he heard and saw in the room. He clocked the tension between me and my mother... He clocked that both me and my mom were absolute traditionalists. So to have two babies by two different men and not be acknowledged by one was such a difficult thing for me. I will say, I think that could be a difficult thing for anybody, even the most progressive of people. He saw every single one of my weaknesses and he wrapped them up with full on charm. And then he insisted they go on a date. And she was like, I'm not really in the mood. I just had a baby. I'm not trying to be seen by the public right now. And I see now he like pushed and pushed and pushed for it. So then he takes the baby. They go downstairs on a walk at the courtyard of the Four Seasons. And of course, a photo was taken of weeks after this baby is born. She's in the arms of some new man that Mel B is reportedly dating. He also, this is a really fucking weird thing, calls Angel his golden goose. Where's my golden goose, he would say as he walked into the room. And she was taking it as like, oh, isn't it sweet that he cares so much about my baby? But to literally call it a golden goose is like disgusting. The child of Eddie Murphy is an absolute fucking goose egg coin-wise. Goose egg is like a very different thing than a golden goose. She says, I knew I was still in love with Eddie and desperately hurt that not only had he publicly denied our child, but he had moved on so fast with another woman. Stephen was, I genuinely believed, a distraction. Again, I was a fool. My mom left to go back to my sister Danielle in Leeds on June 4th. On June 5th, two months after Stephen had first come to the hotel. So Angel was born April. This is two months later. Two months after Stephen had first come to the hotel, he was down on his knees proposing and the words, okay, then were coming out of my mouth. The next day, June 6, 2007, we got married in Vegas. I mean, talk about a suavo ass bitch move. The minute that your support system goes back to the UK, suddenly like, let's make this legal. Immediately following their wedding, she's sitting in Vegas at the bar with her assistant, Janet. And she says, should I maybe annul this? Like, did I fuck up? But her fear of the press getting a hold of the fact that two months after the birth of her second child that they have wrung her out for, she accidentally marries a guy for a day. She was like, I literally could not handle the press fallout of that. So I have to act like this was a good choice. Also, I think she wanted to rub it in Eddie's face personally too. Then she gets into the story of her and her dancer husband, Jimmy. Who she also married extremely quickly, despite most of her friends and family not liking Jimmy. And Jimmy not really liking her. So the pattern emerges. She's like in her early 20s. It's 1998. She's like at the top of the world for the first time. And they bring in these backup dancers. And he's partnered with Mel B. 
And right away, even though she has a boyfriend, she has a crush on him. He has a girlfriend. She has a boyfriend. He is absolutely disinterested in her. And that's what's appealing. Also, it's important to note that the other Spice Girls had been really pairing off at this point. Victoria had met David Beckham. It was less, we're just girls on tour and more like, we're all good friends, but we're going to go home to our boyfriends. So he had a girlfriend. He wasn't interested, but she just kept fighting and fighting for it. Jim and I started dating on March 13th, and by May 13th, he'd proposed in Paris after exactly two months, just like Steven. And he had done this whole thing where he'd gone out and out, and she was so happy. And also, she says at this point, all of her friends from home were having babies and like on their second baby, and she just wanted to settle down and buy a house. And of course, this is a horrible match. She goes, I was thrilled that I'd made this distant man fall in love with me. He reminded me of my dad. He would go from hot to cold emotionally. He was serious. He had his own rules he lived by. Be quiet, Melanie. Calm down, he'd tell me. Can you listen to people and stop talking over them? It was like being with my dad. I persuaded myself that he was trying to make me a better person because he cared about me so much. His criticisms were all well meant. But just like my dad, he was able to confuse me emotionally by switching off, giving me a long, cold stare for no reason, like he didn't even like me at all. Mom, I fancy my dancer, I told her after the first show in Dublin. No, Melanie, no, was all I needed. That rebellious desire to show my mother that I knew what I was doing and I was in control of my own life. So, of course, they end up together and it turns out he's a huge shopper. She's constantly buying him things. He's constantly using her card. And not only does he not like her, but they don't even have sex. Everyone on the tour knew that we had a problem with our sex life because I was often confiding in the other dancers and the girls. I guess they did have sex at least once because one day Victoria comes running into her room screaming that she's pregnant. Mel B is like, oh my God, bag of pregnancy tests. I want to try one. She tries one, realizes she's pregnant too. So that pretty much locks it in for a while. She has this giant over-the-top wedding. We drove off in a vintage Rolls Royce to the Hempel, but somehow a message hadn't gotten through about flowers, champagne, and music, and our bridal suite was bare and minimal. Pretty symbolic, really. Jim got in bed, turned his back on me, and fell asleep. He doesn't love me. I pushed away the thought. He's exhausted. It's been a mad day. Maybe this is what really happens on wedding nights. My uncle Barry told me later that Jimmy had come out of one of the bathrooms in Marlowe after the wedding and said to him, that's it now. I'm a rich man. Everyone else could clearly see that he was marrying me for my money. I also knew I'd ignored all the warnings. Then she jumps back to her marriage with Stephen. She says, I bought a beautiful diamond engagement ring from Caesar's Palace. Yes, yet again, I bought myself an engagement ring and put it on my finger. So as soon as they get home... A few months after we got married, I woke up with a shock. The night before, Steve and I had had a threesome with another woman. And this begins her explanation of like their sexual lives. She obviously is bisexual. She has a pretty healthy sexual appetite. And so even though she was into having all these threesomes, I think what was happening, as she explains here, is basically she would get really fucked up and then he would take videos of it. And I think she never really seems aware or that into the videoing of it. But immediately after the first time, she says, my head was spinning for hours. I couldn't get rid of this horrible lurching feeling. But the problem is, she says, sexually, Stephen was my match. To me, after Jimmy, after what I'd been through with Eddie, this made me feel completely desired. And so she calls her parents from Los Angeles when they get back to L.A. And she says, surprise, I've just gotten married. The news was about as unwelcome as dog poo in a swimming pool. So then it begins like her children are unhappy. Phoenix from the jump does not like Stephen and had no say in it. And immediately she starts losing friends and family over it. Janet, her best friend and personal assistant for years, quit within the year. She couldn't stop herself from berating him. I had one of them on each side of me, kicking at each other nonstop. He goes in your bag and takes your credit card to go shopping, she'd say. He's left porn magazines open in Phoenix's bathroom. Melanie, he picked up your phone and went through all of your messages. Within days of us coming back from Vegas, he wasn't just my husband, he was my manager. It had never actually been officially discussed. It simply happened. He was good at two things, telling me I could do something and telling me how completely shit I was. So then she goes back into, Stephen treated me like no one else had ever done, except probably my dad. 
she was so afraid of disappointing her father who had all these expectations and would say like, you're going to fail. You have to stop doing this. Like you have to go back to school and say like, you're not going to amount to anything. That when she made all this money, she was so desperate to like win people's approvals back over that she would do all of these grand gestures. Like she bought her parents this house. She talks about the stuff she bought for Jimmy. She says on her wedding day, she bought her sister this tricked out sports car. And her sister was just like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with this? Like nobody wanted any of it. One of the crazier stories she says is after the fallout of the divorce, her mom comes to live with her in LA. She has one of her friends come over to surprise her by throwing $5,000 in cash on her head, like making it rain on her own mom as like a thank you. And her mom is just like, I don't want this money. Stop it. Which is ironic because one of the things she says about Eddie is that Eddie had given her a credit card and was like, it would make me so happy if you use this. And after two weeks, she gave it back and she's like, I don't want your credit card. I have my own money. I am rich. (laughs) But it's funny that like she can see as being the recipient of it. She's like, that's not what I'm here for. But that she and herself is so afraid that nobody would want anything from her but her money. But then of course, she keeps reaffirming that insecurity by only marrying people who want her for her money. Right. And then with Steven, for every... 100 horrible things he would do there would be one thing that really shined through to her and would really affirm for her why this was the right thing so first there was the way that he would make her feel desired in a time when she was being fludged through the press then he convinces her to go on dancing with the stars so his first move as manager essentially was to make her go on this show and she did not want to do it but it ended up being an incredible decision. People saw who I was behind those awful headlines. They got to know me, to see me struggle, fight, and rise. And they saw me dance, the great passion of my life since I was a little kid. And she says, so he really does know what he's doing. He really does know what's best for me, I thought to myself. This threw me again because it made me think he was some kind of business genius. But of course, it's like what people fell in love with was her personality unfiltered. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to say, why don't you do Dancing with the Stars? So then she gets into what happened with Jim. And the breaking point for her relationship with Jim was when she was pregnant with her baby Phoenix, they got into a fight and she fell down the stairs. And he did not come back and check for her. He was walking away from her. She fell down the stairs. He heard it and did not stop walking and just closed himself into his bedroom. And there she was pregnant with her baby. And she was like, I have to get out of here. Jim also has a temper. Story opens up with like a vase being thrown. In 2002, he was fined for smacking a three-year-old autistic boy who had pushed Phoenix in a zoo. Phoenix has been through some shit. We looked her up. She's beautiful now. And I, I hope she's doing okay. But both parents have put her through a lot. Mel returns to this a couple of times saying like she really thought that Phoenix was like less aware of the abuse that was happening between her and Steven. But then when we get Phoenix's side of the story later on, Phoenix was being horribly verbally abused by Steven. So part of the problem of Steven she then gets into is that he obviously is a schmoozer, like a wheeler and a dealer, a suavo. And right away, days after they had gotten married, he had the keys to a 200,000 pound black Bentley. He had a whole new wardrobe of Gucci. That was not her world. She is not a fancy bitch. She's someone who likes the finer things, but at the end of the day... She just like isn't really interested in all that. She did have like a time when she was with the Spice Girls that she would hang out with all the famous young British people that there were. But now she's just like, I don't know, man. I have kids. I want to stay home. I like just hanging out. And Steven was not interested in that at all. He was like, okay, these are the parties we need to go to. And these are the people that you should be introducing me to. She also talks about other red flags. Steven would punch Phoenix's golden retriever, Lordy. She also says everybody hated him. Like, not one person liked him. Yeah, I literally cannot fathom liking someone who would punch a golden retriever. So she gets into the fact that he had a tough childhood. His dad was in and out of jail. He grew up in a really abusive home. 
But then, of course, she describes how fucked up he was to her. The ups and downs of, look at your arms. They look flabby and saggy. You're old and you're ugly. Get out of my sight. Your ass, Melanie, it's disgusting. And then you should thank God you have me because no one else would want you. And then, of course, 10 minutes later, he would be shouting for me to have sex with him, telling me I was his princess, his queen, how much he loved me and he couldn't live without me. He'd tell me I looked stressed out and needed to wind down. He'd bring out a bottle of vodka, pour me a drink, then an hour later scream, you're drunk, you're disgusting bitch, you look like a derelict. My brain was scrambled. I told myself he was insecure, he had a damaged background and that I hadn't given him enough attention, that he didn't mean what he was saying. But I was still hormonal after giving birth and felt completely crap about myself. So she admits here, one of my problems that I can't admit to having made a mistake, I toughed it out. So then she gets into the Spice Girls reunion. It's 2008. They were supposed to go on a world tour. And she talks about how much fun they had, how they loved being all back together. One of the funniest things ever is that in this tour, they wanted to all have a solo moment. And she talks about how she had to go on after Victoria. And Victoria didn't want to sing. So she just had a song play in the background and like strutted the catwalk. And Melanie goes, it was a tough act to follow. So I guess what happened was halfway through the tour, they canceled the rest of the dates and they said it was just exhaustion and too much. And she says in reality, it was because she was on the verge of a nervous breakdown because of Steven, that she would fake it. But one day Jerry found her late for a meet and greet, just curled up in the fetal position, crying hysterically in the shower. She was like, it was me. I was why we had to cancel because I couldn't continue. She talks about the way that her entire life fell away because of her relationship with Steven. She says, I probably knew deep down that is why my friends hadn't come to see me. Anyone who is in any form of abusive relationship gradually starts to accept that the friends slowly peel away. Initially, the peel away makes things easier. You don't have the embarrassment of seeing really good mates, such as my great friend Kim, look horrified in the middle of some social gathering at our house when Steven starts screaming at me. She also says in 2018, when they were supposed to reunite again, that she was raw and vulnerable and in a bad place. They had all agreed to meet up somewhere and had changed it last minute because of the paparazzi. And she was the last to find out. And she took that as like an attack on her that nobody wanted her there. And she said, we were all excited to do it. But within a few months, all the egos had taken over and it it broke up again. So that's the explanation she gives for the later reunion and why that fell apart. She talks about Steven meeting the Spice Girls and how awful it was to see them see her in this awful relationship. Steven was just wheeling and dealing. Like everyone else was hanging out, like ooing and aahing over each other's little babies. And Steven was like, how do I get David Beckham to talk to me? Yeah. And Steven hated Phoenix. Like that made him so mad that Phoenix was close to the Spice Girls in a way he couldn't because I guess he felt that she was out of his control. I mean, there was no one to fight over Angel for. The whole event wasn't much fun for me. Steven was there. The mix of Steven, the other Spice Girls and me was always a problem. It was part of the reason why I hadn't been the one to keep in touch. It was part of the problem of isolation. It was easier to stay away even from my girls who were the biggest and greatest part of my life. There was also a rumor that Steven was even trying to take over as the manager of the Spice Girls, which is... I mean, he was trying, but that wasn't going to do him anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess there was a rumor that he was taking over as the manager of the Spice Girls. He was trying to, but he, of course, was not going to. So a year after their Vegas wedding, they decide to do it right and have a huge wedding out in Egypt. They fly everybody out. It's a giant party. But here, Phoenix confides in Melby's mom that Steven is abusive and scary to her. He keeps guns in the house. He calls her mean names. I mean, the things that start coming out towards the end of the book of the way that he treated the children, which is shocking because Mel B kind of maintains that she was able to hide the children from it. But it wasn't just how he was treating her in front of the children. It was how he was treating the children. They're not allowed to eat at the table, so they have to eat all their dinner on the floor. They have to stay in their rooms, constantly being berated, screamed at. He calls her ugly. He calls her stupid. He's throwing her dog at her all the time. Literally, they couldn't eat at the table. Can you imagine? 
Phoenix tells Melby's mom about it and Melby doesn't know what to do. And so when the wedding is over, she's like, look, I have to tell you, I'm worried. I'm worried about your children. Melby, of course, tells Stephen. She says, I knew it wasn't going well. I would not see my mother again for eight years. Stephen calls up her mom, berates her, screams at her, gets Phoenix in the room, calls Phoenix a liar to her face, tells Phoenix to tell Melby and everybody that she's a liar, the mom's a liar, everyone's a liar. And then the mom calls her back. It's the middle of the night in England. She's desperate to get a hold of Mel B because she's so scared of what she heard from Steven. The phone is cut off. The emails start bouncing back. They don't speak to each other for almost a decade. I mean, he says, you need to know, you fucking bitch, whore, you will never see your grandchildren again. And then Mel B writes that during their divorce, Phoenix wrote a statement. She says, I will admit it wasn't until halfway through my court case against Steven that my brave daughter chose to talk about what she had witnessed and I realized what she herself went through. To this day, I have not read every word she said. What breaks my heart is that Never in 10 years did she once cry out to me. This I I have to call a tiny bit of question to. So later in the book, Phoenix writes an essay and she goes, I couldn't talk to my mom. Someone else who looked like her was in her body. She believed every word he said. She loved him. I could tell. This might be the way it was when your mother got married. Maybe I had to suck it up. I didn't want to ruin it for her. I mean, she went to Andrea, the grandmother over her own mother. I do think she had this feeling that nothing she said would change anything or be believed. And she was scared of letting her mom down. I guess I get that, but I do think this whole thing of like, maybe she never cried out to you, but you were watching yeah. her eat her meals on the floor. You said, I never saw the cruelty. Oh, she says she never saw him beat Lordy. For 10 years, I convinced myself that I protected her, that she and her two little sisters were cushioned from the emotional horrors of my relationship with Stephen. It is very hard as a mother to admit that they weren't. It's hard to see when you are in it and the emotional upset you feel with your partner doesn't just exist between the two of you. I guess I do believe that she genuinely believes that and that is almost more heartbreaking. I mean, it's so all-consuming. Yeah. But I also think that's why I respect this book so much is because she was a bad mom to those kids for 10 years. She did let them down and she admits all of it. She could have maintained that, well, I kept them hidden and they never saw, but she fully cops to how bad this relationship hurt everyone around her. But then she talks about the way that Steven would get her so fucked up on drugs and alcohol and then make these videos. So she says in court, the initial charges involved domestic violence. But by November 2017, as part of a mediation settlement, I agreed to drop domestic violence charges in order for all the 64 sex tapes he had made during our marriage not to be shown in open court. I couldn't deal with it anymore. I couldn't deal with him anymore. If, if they were shown, they would enter public domain. Such are the deals we make. Looking back, it was a deal I regret. So as a legal requirement of getting this type of settlement, in order for these to not be shown in open court, therefore become public domain and therefore essentially be as good as release, she had to sit down and watch all of them. I've watched porn videos many times, but these videos were not porn. They were dark. They were out of control. I started to shake. Some I remembered, some I did not. Gary, that's not me. I told him pointing at myself on the screen. Gary was her friend who watched with it. She says, I remember lying in, on the bed in that hotel in Koreatown in the fetal position. That's where she watched the videos. She watched them in hotel. Other images played across the screen in my mind, dredged from the vaults deep in my brain that I had previously blocked myself from remembering. I saw in flashes, me waking up in pools of piss, vomit, shit, and blood, being mortified, dragging myself up and rolling up my white sheets, stuffing them soiled and filthy into bin bags, showering over and over again. For hours, I lay there with my eyes wide open. Nothing was in my head. I've learned the word from the thesaurus I carry around with me. Catatonic. I was catatonic. And it wasn't just sex tapes. It was videos of her really fucked up on drugs and him humiliating her and berating her for being so drunk and be like, you need to be institutionalized. You're crazy. You're out of control. He would bring Phoenix in to look at her mom in that state and say, look at your mother. Can you believe your mother is this out of control? 
and it was all on video. I fell down a hole. I'd been doing so well. I had been happy. I'd been up running around the house in the mornings. So I liked the routine of my new life with my girls. And thinking back, I was proud of myself for being so together. And then this, these videos sent her spiraling. But she says, I didn't do anything. I didn't start secretly stockpiling pills. I sat with those thoughts. I was going to let myself cry. I was going to let myself fall, but I was never going to check out again. Never again. I had to believe that this was all for a purpose, that my power would come back to me. My light would shine again. A layer had been ripped off me, but I had faith that I would emerge stronger and better. I had my friends. I had my family. I was going to get through it. So she goes back to where this book started, December 2014, when she attempts suicide leaves Steven by going on the X Factor publicly without a ring, but then has to return to him and make a public statement about how it was just kind of a misunderstanding. They were still together because she needed to make it look that way in order to make sure that she maintained custody of Maddie. So she drives back to his house that he's rented in Malibu with her money, of course, brings the kids and they have Christmas. She says at Christmas dinner, not one person speaks. But what Phoenix does recall is Steven picking up her phone at the end of the meal and taking a photograph. Can everyone just chill? He didn't hit my mom. Don't know how that stupid rumor came up. He posted on her Instagram page alongside with a photo of the two of them together and all of us sitting around her house for Christmas. He took my phone and posted, have a Merry Christmas, hashtag family time, hashtag fun day. And I felt I could do nothing about it. I did do something. I continued to drink too much. I continued on and off to use cocaine. I continued to have threesomes with my husband and I continued to work. Good Mel at work, alive, firing on all four cylinders, happy. Bad Mel at home, dead inside, buried under the oblivion of sex and alcohol. Amazing what you do to stop yourself from thinking. Amazing what you do when you believe beneath the laughs and the smiles that you are a worthless piece of crap. So then she gets into the sex and she says, I'll tell you about the sex is what a lot of people want to know. And I don't know. I guess I'm like, what is there to know? You had a threesome. Fun. (laughs) I don't know. But she says like, it was women she knew. And then it was sometimes women they met at the club. But then she later found out that these strangers they met at the club that she would invite over actually were often women Stephen had already known and picked, which is a real betrayal. She talks about developing her trust in Dr. Sophie. She says that he had been picked out by Stephen. So she was like, who's this guy? He's not on my side. And slowly but surely understanding that Dr. Sophie was on her team. So then, of course, her dad dies. It's March 4th, 2017. They hadn't been speaking, but she finds out that it's the end for him. She gets on a plane. She runs out there with her daughter. She says actually in a one sentence that me and Ashley immediately picked up on. She says that Phoenix had been having trouble at school. She had crashed a car. So she sent Phoenix to a boarding school in Utah, which we know means one of those really scary behavioral therapy camps where they abuse you like Paris Hilton. Poor Phoenix. My heart goes out to Phoenix. So she picks up Phoenix. They go to England to say goodbye to the father. They spend a couple days around his deathbed. And even though he can no longer speak, he does seem to acknowledge Mel's presence. And they have some really beautiful family moments. And then he passes away. And immediately she jumps into action on leaving Stephen. She says she couldn't leave Stephen until her dad died. There was just so much sexual fallout that I think she couldn't handle her dad being alive to witness it. Once her dad dies, she does immediately divorce Stephen. She runs out of the house. She gets a restraining order and she has no access to any of her money. She has one bank account that she set up for herself with less than $1,000 in it. I could feel the tension rising with Stephen as he began insisting we make a podcast to talk about our divorce. I also have that line highlighted, a podcast, Jesus. The kids were beside themselves with excitement the first time we all sat down at the kitchen table and and ate in our new house. It's so great to eat at a table, mommy, Maddie grinned. She moves them into a smaller apartment and she says like, yes, I've been rich and now I don't have as much money because I have to pay all these lawyers fees. I have to pay my ex-husbands, but 
we're happier in this apartment near the Grove than we ever were in those giant houses. And then she gets into all the plastic surgery she got. She got her face done, her boobs done. She got vagina plasty. And then she says, and I find this interesting. A week later, I was sitting on the rooftop bar of the SLS Hotel in Beverly Hills where there's a special recovery center for people who have had surgery. But so her friend comes and says... You know, Melanie, when people have been through trauma, they often scrub themselves to the point that they bleed or use horrible things like bleach on themselves. It's a primal thing, an instinct. You're a famous woman. You live in Hollywood where all this is normal. But have you ever tried to think why you did this? Are you trying to erase every trace? Are you trying to turn back the clock to the point before Stephen was ever ever in your life? I opened my mouth to say no. And then it dawned on me that what she was saying was true. I didn't know what to think because I didn't want to go down a dark path. I wanted light and laughter from now. And then you realize how long the path to recovery is. Whether you try it and run down it or dance down it, that road just keeps getting longer and longer. She kind of cops like the things that she's done that the world has called crazy in order to help herself heal. Like the fact that she got the skin with Steven's name on her body tattooed, removed. Like she didn't get the tattoo removed. She got that piece of skin cut off of her body. And she says she still has it and plans on burning it one day. Her own flesh. That's why I'm like, that is an intense thing to do. And she's very honest about being like, this is what I feel I need to do. I know that it seems crazy, but... It's hard out here. And I'm like, God bless. If that makes you feel better, then I hope you find peace. Me too. And she talks about how hard the legal battle has been, how it's just been never ending. She says, I was also fighting a court case that was getting messier by the day. I wanted to stand up and fight for all the women, but the law is the law. You need proof of things that are impossible to prove. Perfect recall of times and places that you have blocked from your mind. If you're a celebrity, the court battle spills into the media where with every single headline, your reputation is damaged chip by chip. And that's where it ends. It just ends with her suffering from the PTSD of this relationship. This book came out in 2018. She filed for divorce in 2017. It's very much a Jodie Sweetin type of like, we're still living it. This was a very much like the public needs to understand what actually happened because I need the power of public opinion on my side. The epilogue ends. My roller coaster life is far from over. There will be more twists and turns and falls and rises as every year goes by, but I welcome that. I'm an imperfect woman who has made mistakes, but I believe the truth sets you free. If my honesty enables another woman to share her story or feel less shame, then I am happy. My story is yet to end. And the last page of this book is 15 Signs of Domestic Abuse. I mean, she really does want to help other women from so many different angles. She wants to help women understand what leads you to situations like this. She wants women to understand that they're not alone. She wants to help prevent the level of isolation that occurs when people feel the shame of thinking that they've let this situation happen to themselves, which is never true. It's never something that is your fault. And then she also is like doing work with the law. Like she's worked with a couple of different organizations to help change what needs to be proved and presented and and what laws exist for, I don't know what you are and aren't allowed to do with women. There's like that coercion law in England now that is still like almost impossible to prove, but there have been cases. One. In conclusion, Ashley, final thoughts? Final thoughts, Mel B is not a perfect person, but she is someone that I, from the bottom of my heart, want the best for. Same. I like really respect the honesty. And I think there's a lot of ways to be like, what do you want from a memoir? I think in this podcast, the only things we've really asked for people is like true honesty and like compassion for other people. Owning your mistakes, things like that. But then also like taking the sympathy you want for yourself or the understanding you're asking of other people for yourself and being able to apply to other people. And I think actually Mel B does do that a lot. And she does use her traumas to help other people. Which is shocking because I you would think because there's so little Spice Girl gossip in here, you would think we'd be pissed. But 
she gives so much. She's so honest. She plunges the depths of her soul. And for that, we say thank you, Mel B. I will also say I think it helps that we read Jerry's book because that had all the spice gossip I think we really needed. And so we mm-hmm. we have our spice backstory. I yeah, it's just like this book picks up right where that book leaves off. Yeah. And so I love you, Mel B. And you know who else I love? Our five-star reviewers. Thank you to M. Benin Casa. You're welcome for dinner at my casa anytime. Thank you, Kate King. You are an absolute king. Thank you, Grace Lind, for this gracious review. Thank you, Gazulay. I am sending you a romantic gaze. Thanks, Baloney Mom. You are a perfect sandwich to me. Thank you, Terp Mom. Go Turtles, baby. Thank you, MCS Maria 28. If I knew the lyrics to that Just Met a Girl Named Maria song, I would sing it right now. Thank you, T. Danny Cooney. This is a perfect review to a T. Thanks, Cleo Seychelles. Oh, no, Cleo. Thank you, 1610801. I appreciate the password. Thanks, Taylor Chilton 18. I hope someday we can get into Chilton just like Rory. Thank you, Podskank. I appreciate your rad skankness. Thank you, a Pogo 92. Someday we'll Pogo stick together. Thank you, V Davy 1021. I can't wait to travel together in a flying V. Thank you, Cat Lady C. Tell your cats I say hello. Thanks, Sim One Knee. We're not we're not the Sims. This is real life, baby. Thank you, Caitlin Babera. You are an absolute babe. Thanks, Delaney nineteen eighty. You are an absolute poem. Thanks, Ale Not Larios. Cheers me with an ale. Thanks, Pod is my co-pilot. I will do my best to get the directions right. Thank you, Julia Kate Davis. A person so nice, they named her thrice. Thank you, Jessica Ackerman. Me and Kathy love screaming your last name. Thank you, Grace Zern. We bow down to your grace. And that is all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I love you and I'll see you next week.